Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Timeless Podcast Company present this podcast. In immersive sound design. Welcome to the Breaking Anonymity podcast. My name is MC Search, and I will be joined later by my co-host Kyle Eustace. Each week we sit down with musicians, celebrities, and artists to have real conversations as they share their stories of addiction and recovery. Before we bring on our guests, thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself. Most of the world knows me as MC Search, but I am Michael and I am an addict. My recovery date is 11 11 11. And besides the success I've had in music and as a businessman, I was an addict. And with the help of a 12-step program, it led me into the rooms of recovery. My partner Kyle Eustace is a veteran music journalist writing for Hip Hop DX and Thrasher magazine and has 14 years of recovery. Our goal is that our show can bring inspiration and hope to other people out there. Please excuse the sound quality as this was recorded during the pandemic, which presented its own set of audio challenges. Hey, what's up? This is the Breaking Anonymity podcast. My name is MC Search. This podcast is dedicated to breaking the stigma of a 12-step program and talking to men and women, celebrities, artists, uh, people you might know, people you might respect, but all who have had struggled with addiction, but worked uh, a program and overcame their addiction to um, just feel good about themselves without the use of something in their system. Um, at the end of the show, we're gonna be giving you numbers, we're gonna be give you websites, people that you can reach out to, um, that if you want that kind of help, if you're looking for that kind of help, that you can get that kind of help. Um, and Kyle, we have a, a really special, special guest, someone not only that, I care about and love dearly, but uh, an MC, I respect a great deal. Mm-hmm. We sure do. Um, I'd like to introduce our guest today, hailing from Motor City. Veteran MC Royce of 5'9 has such a stacked resume, I don't really even know where to begin. Um, from Bad Meets Evil and Prime with DJ Premier to Slaughterhouse, he's proven his innate skill on the mic time and time again. More recently, his 2020 album, The Allegory, was nominated for a Grammy Award in the Best Rap Album category alongside Nas, D Smoke, Jay Electronica, and Freddie Gibbs in The Alchemist. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg uh, after getting sober in 2012 he's been a beacon of hope for many recovering addicts ladies and gentlemen i'd like to introduce voice the five no <laughs> one hell of an intro thank you those kind words i love the fact that you guys are using this platform to to speak power to this message it's definitely it's definitely necessary my name is ryan montgomery i'm an alcoholic I decided to get over eight years ago. I came into the into the record business at 20 years old. As a black kid growing up in Detroit, Michigan, it's like a chase. It's like a journey. It's a journey trying to find yourself within the world, trying to find out who you are, trying to find out where you fit, and is it inside or outside the, the social construct or the picture that's been put into our heads that we either need to live up to or just dealing with things based off of my life experiences up to that point, you know, be it trauma or whatever, and just really just figuring things out through trial and error, not really having a whole bunch of information. I don't think that my, my parents were armed with, with too much information, well, at least not pertinent information. Um, they, they just kind of armed me with what they knew. I quickly found out that I, I didn't have much use for what I knew, you know, so I had to kind of go out and just figure things out. When I graduated high school, I moved to New York and stayed with a friend. And, you know, that I made a decision that I was going to go, I was going to leave Detroit and I wasn't going to come back until I got a record deal. Because at that time, you had to have a record deal because you had to know how to rap. Like everybody 
wanted to be good at rapping. It was at that time where you could like walk into a label and and do a meeting with a label and just not even have music, just go in there and spit a verse and you just may get signed depending on who it is. You know, so it was a, it was a simpler time, but it just didn't feel like that in those moments. So um, Eminem is a good friend of mine. Um, we pretty much came into the game around the same time. When he signed with Dre, I was taking meetings in New York at the time. And um, I took a meeting with Herbie Lovebug and I was about to do a deal with him. As I was, as we were like communicating, you know, like the communication was a little bit sketchy. You know what I mean? Like he, he wasn't really as present as I would have felt comfortable with him being, but I just wanted a record deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I remember getting on the phone with Marshall that we were still using landlines back then. Um, for whatever reason, I was back at the, at, in Detroit and I was at my mom's house. And um, I, I, I was on the phone with Marshall and I told him that uh, I was about to do a deal with Herbie Lovebuck. And this is right after he told me he did a deal with Dr. Dre. And he was like, what'd you say? I was like, yeah, I'm about to do a deal. He was like, who did you say you was doing a deal with? I was doing a deal with Herbie Love, but you're not doing no deal with Herbie Love, but said no disrespect. You're not doing no deal with Herbie Love, but so he said, let me call you back. So I guess he went and played Dre, my, uh, my demo at the time, whatever, whatever that consisted of the next day, I'm sitting in, in the room and then my dad just comes in the room and says, uh, Ryan, it's a Dr. Dre on the phone for you? I was like, well, excuse me? So I go and I get the phones. Hey, what's up? It's Dre. So like, this is my first time like ever even having a conversation with a celebrity. This is the closest in proximity I've ever come to somebody famous besides seeing Joe Dumars at the gas station or something. He like, yo, I'm feeling your shit. Marshall played it for me, man. He told me uh, what was going on. How, would you be open to coming out here? We working on some shit. He's working on the Chronic 2001 at the time. I said, would I? So he flew me out to Cali. That was my first time going to Cali. First time being in a mansion. First time seeing an SSL board. First time. My first time being around top tier musicianship and artistry and like sounds, you know, drum sounds. Everything was just like, it's just a different level from what I was used to, you know. So um, I started working with them. At that time, M started doing shows and I just happened to be out there with them. So... One thing led to another. I ended up being being his hype man for some shows that he was doing. So we we got really close, spending all of that time around each other. So um, once the in- industry kind of found out that I was like working with them so close, and you know, like that movement that they had started to move kind of fast, and then all of the labels in New York that I took meetings with um, that told me no, they all reached out and wanted to meet again. So Tommy Boy Records was the main one that wanted to meet again, that we made kind of like a priority because they were making like a a huge offer. So I went back to New York. I played Tommy Boy the exact same songs that I played them the first time. And it was like the greatest thing in the world that they had ever heard. You know, so one thing led to another. I did my deal with Tommy Boy. And um, the first time I took a drink was with Dr. Dre. So I was at Dre's house. And he asked me if I wanted to drink. And he was just being, you know, hospitable. And um, I swear, I remember to this day, I just said, I said yes, just because I didn't want to say no. That was the only reason. It wasn't like I was thirsty or like, you know, like parched. You know what I mean? Like where I was like, yo, I'm a, tr- I'm a, I really hope I can get me some liquor one day. You know what I mean? Actually, it was the opposite because I was an athlete. And um, growing up, like my big brother used to, my big brother used to sh- used to come home from hanging out all the time drunk. He used to drink uh, malt liquor, like 40 ounces. And I don't know why he used to do this because my dad was like, my dad is the kind of toxic that like he'll like, he'll confront you with force every single time. Like there won't be a time where he'll just be like, you know what, I don't even feel like dealing with it tonight. Every single time it's gonna be a problem. So I just didn't understand why my brother used to come in so drunk so much because it would just like totally ruin the night. So I remember me and my little brother just always telling ourselves like, man, 
I'm not, I'm not drinking because I don't want to look like that. You know what I'm saying? So, and then a lot of my friends were drinking. I still like really love basketball back then. So I just, it was just a thing for me to, to not drink. You know what I mean? So it was kind of like a boundary that I set at some point. And I don't know what it was about being around Dr. Dre where it, I established a new boundary. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like, um, that's kind of like what this business does. It, it like, it exacerbates like everything. You know what I mean? So it's like, if you're not mature enough to kind of like self-police or like just really put things in perspective and, you know, like, cause I know with me, I was, I think I was a little more concerned with like fit, fitting in, not wanting to be known as difficult, you know, like all of the things that get put into our heads, you know, like as youngins, we hear the horror stories about the record business. We don't hear good things about the record business. We hear the worst things about the record business. So we come into the record business pretty much afraid of things. We don't want to be in a bad contract. We don't want to, uh, you know, like all the documentaries that we see, all of our heroes, you know, like being taken advantage of, dying broke. You know, like when I told my dad that I was signing a record deal, the first thing he said was, you know, be careful, make sure you got, you know what I mean? Like we immediately go to the bad stuff. You know, it's never like, yo, excitement. Yes. Let me teach you, you know, how to not be in a bad deal. You know what I mean? Like we don't put emphasis on that. If everything's just like, you know, Yo, I got I got robbed. I got taken advantage of. I got you know everybody's so shady. The record label is like this big machine where there's a devil sitting in like some enchanted chair, you know, that's just out to get everybody, you know. And that's re that's really like how we view you know music. So um, so I took my first drink with Drake because he's Dr. Drake. I looked up to him. Uh, I didn't want to be the only one who wasn't drinking. And um, I just didn't feel like I should say no. You know what I mean? Like, it, and it wasn't even like he was pressuring me. So since I took that drink, eventually I took another drink, you know, throughout the next few months. Now it's like, oh, I don't really have to say no now because I drank that other time. I drank the other time, you know what I mean? And then, you know, another year go by, another year go by. And then now I'm drinking regularly. It is still cool. You know what I mean? Like, yo, Royce is drinking now. He's fun. He's cracking jokes. You know what I mean? Like, everything's cool. You know, and then um, working on an album, you know, drinking in the studio, writing raps, you know, and then more drinking in the studio for I write raps. And then it was like turned into make sure we go to the store before we go to the studio so I can write raps. You know what I mean? And then, you know, and then by that time it became a dependency, you know. So um, as addicts, you don't want to you don't want to say that you don't want to admit that you don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to feel like you have a dependency. So you know, like it's like you're running from that, but you're still chasing. You know, the the, the habit that you developed, and you pretty much trained yourself to believe that, you know, this is this this is your process. This is how you create. You know what I mean? Like some people have weed, some people have pills, some people have. I just looked at it like that. I looked at it like some people have what they have. I have alcohol. That's just what I do. So, and then throughout the years, it just got progressively worse. And I really, I started to drink based off of where, how things were, the way things were going. You know, if things, if things were going, if I felt like things were going well, then I would drink a lot, just in a festive way. If I felt like things were, were not going so well, I would drink a lot more, not so much in a festive way. You know what I mean? Liquor started turning into the thing that kind of like um, influenced my decision making. You know, like it. It allows you, it, it makes you let go of your, your inhibitions. You know what I mean? Like after you get past the novelty of thinking, thinking of thinking that it does good things, you know, like takes off the edge when I'm about to perform. You know what I mean? Like it makes me more social. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, I quickly developed into one of those people that were like, you know, I'll, I'll be speaking to you and like you'll be talking to me. And while you're talking, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say to you next and not listening to you because I'm like, more concerned with making a good impression on you than than actually um, engaging in conversation with you. You know what I mean? Like, I want everybody to like me. want to appear to be comfortable around everybody. So whatever I got to do to, you know, get in, in that space, because that's part of it. If you say I need a stylist, then give me a stylist. If you say I need media training, let's let's train for media. Let's just do let's do it all. Let's let's subscribe to it. You know what I mean? So we probably would be here for like the next five to ten days if I tried to just tell you every bad thing. You know what I mean? Like, let's just say the pathway that's created throughout this business from where we come from, the pathway is probably one pathway. 
And that's the pathway of no information, no OGs to give us any information. No, it was a, is is a is an information gap. There's a there's an everything gap. I just went to this place eventually where I just started making every bad decision that you can think of. You know, since I didn't have anybody to give me any information, I was taking in a lot of wisdom at a very rapid rate. And I was learning everything through trial and error. And just, you know, I was learning all of the valuable life lessons. Judge a character, having to happen to create boundaries when you come into the space, the importance of standing for something, deciding to yourself what what you're going to do, what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do. Not kind of just going day to day, just kind of like doing this the Romans do. You know what I mean? Like I quickly learned that this is not that kind of space. You know what I mean? Like I've I seen a lot of people come and go. I've seen a lot of sad things. I've seen a lot of people, you know, throughout my journeys that were like, I, I meet them and they're bright eyed and bushy tailed. And then a few years later, dark and dismal. You know what I mean? Like it, it's that kind of environment. It'll chew you up and spit you out. If there's no order, you know, if there's no way to, to self-police and kind of like govern things. So um, my <clears throat> my habit just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then um, it got to a point where I just was like, I know that I know I can't continue to do this for too for too much longer. You know, what I mean, just the thought started like that. And then eventually, you know, they got more gradual, you know, like my, my wife had been telling me my everybody had been telling me, but it was like. I was not going to listen. You know, I was going to, I knew eventually I was going to have to stop, but I just felt like it was just going to happen whenever it was meant to happen. So the first thing I did was I tried to, um, I tried to only drink on the weekends and then that didn't go well. That didn't go well at all because now I've learned that I really can't control it. You know what I mean? So then I tried to switch the wine. That went worse. I tried to switch the wine. That was the worst shit I've ever done. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, you know how much wine you got to drink, Search? You know how much wine you got to drink to actually get the same drunk that you were looking for from from Patron? My God, not only was I like sloppy drunk all the time, but I was like gained a lot of weight, kept like a lot of water weight on me. And it was just like, I smelled like wine all the time. I mean, I smelled like Patron all the time, but the wine was louder. I would go to the studio and like, I'd be on the phone arguing with some girl that I shouldn't have been talking to, you know what I mean? And then like, I'd be drinking and she's just as toxic as me. And then by the time I get off the phone with her and actually walk to the board to turn a beat on, I'm drunk already. So now I'm writing already drunk. And then the next day I wake up and now I'm listening to something that sounds terrible from the night, from the night before that I got to either fix or just completely redo. So like, I made everything more difficult. I turned everything into the long way. It was no corners to cut. Like I made everything just difficult for myself. It has got to a point where I got like DUIs, like a lot of drinking and driving. I ended up going to jail for a year. You know what I mean? I um, I was leaving the house. Like I just, I think I gave my son a high five. I left the house thinking I'm going for, to another day in court. My lawyer told me I'd be fine. You know what I mean? So I was like, yeah, I'll be right back. I came back a year later. You know what I mean? Like the the, the judge told me and um, the prosecuting attorney recommended probation. But the judge said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I said, Mr. Montgomery, do you have anything to say before I sentence you? And I was like, well, I don't have much to say, Your Honor. Um, I'm I'm sorry. You know, um, whatever, whatever, I, whatever I said. Whatever it was, it wasn't good enough. It wouldn't have mattered anyway. So she was like, yeah. So she was like, um, Swifty, she was referring to. I just put one of y'all in jail. And then she referred to proof. And the other one just died. She was like, now I got you here. You just got two of these in a row. She was like, I got to shut you down, sir. She said, because I'm sure that liquor, alcohol, and drugs are free-flowing in your business. And you can't seem to um what did she say you can't seem to um control yourself so i gotta shut you down so i'm gonna give you the maximum amount of time and that's 365 days in the county jail step up to the bailiff and my lawyer started stuttering uh, uh your honor do you think we can you think we can just talk about work release she was like not at this time well can he go home and get changed no he cannot step up to the bailiff so I had a three-piece suit on, 
stepped up to the bailiff, never been in jail before. Now I'm in a van on my way to a jail. So like that pro- that whole process just, it, it gave me the opportunity to get some of the best sleep I ever got. It gave me the opportunity to like not be in control of like the, 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 uh, the flow, the speed in which things were going. It made everything slow down and it, it made me just, you know, just kind of like do some thinking, be alone. Uh, once I, once I was accepting the fact that I was going to be there for a minute, it became easy. You know, the time just started fl- flying by, you know what I mean? Like I, a lot of people kind of like drew their lines in the sand relationship wise and kind of like showed me who they were, which was necessary in that moment. Um, I started doing a lot of reading, which I didn't do before. First, I was reading for information. Then I started reading to be entertained. So I started reading these books, these non-these fiction books. These fiction books were these the authors they would write these fictional stories and they'd be like street tales and shit. I got kind of like addicted to reading those, and it made me it inspired me to want to write, you know, like f- fictional tales because I was already like. Nas is like one of my teachers, you know what I'm saying? So I was already in that kind of like zone. I was telling myself I wanted to like kind of make stories kind of like Nas. I love the way Biggie told stories. I love the way Nas told stories, but I leaned a little toward Nas because they both had twists at the ends of their stories, but Nas stories were more like uh, I could see them. I could see them and they, I never knew where they came from because they weren't like the foundation of them weren't all they weren't always just street, street, street. You know what I mean? Like it was a little bit more, it was a little bit more nerdy. You know what I mean? Like Biggie was a little more Hitchcock. You know what I'm saying? So, so after I went through that ordeal, I had another another child, my, another son. You know, I got on a, got out on work work release, just working on mixtapes and stuff like that. And then eventually, me and Joe end up working together, and that turned into Slaughterhouse, and then. Slaughterhouse started happening and that turned into me getting back cool with him and then that that turned into Bad Meets Evil and by the time Bad Meets Evil started happening that was like um, I started to experience fame again Uh, fame is something that I think that pe- that we think we want because uh, I, f- I feel like fame and money is marketed to you. It's placed in front of you in a way that says, this is what success looks like. Get a lot of this stuff, like subscribe to this. And the problem with that is that it's one of those things that you think you want because it's, it's, it, gets, it gets made to look so fun that you don't really know if you want it until you got it. That's kind of fucked up because that's a that's one of the biggest adjustments because you could be trying to adjust to something that you don't really want. You know what I mean? Because fame is not for everybody. Everybody who's famous is not successful. Everybody who's successful is not famous. And you can flip that around any way you want to and throw rich in there, too. Everybody who's famous ain't rich. Everybody who's rich ain't famous. You know what I mean? So, like, everybody doesn't require to be rich. Some people too much too much of something may put them in an unhappy place, which turns everything bad. So like what I learned is in life, you got to find your essentials. And that comes when you arrive at the place after the journey, you got to arrive at a place. It's like, uh, it's, it's this place where you're comfortable in your skin. It's no longer about, um, being an employee of the people because I was never meant to be that since I came into the game, like it's so close in proximity to Marshall. I used to look at him, I used to look at like the way that we the people would react to us when we be in open mics together, we do songs together. And I used to think to myself that I'm supposed to strive to be that big. But he didn't strive to be that big. One person's journey is different from another person's journey. Somebody would look at him and say, Man, I wish I, I had that. And but then he'll be looking at me and saying, Damn, I wish, I wish I can pump my own gas. You get to pump your own gas, you know what I mean? It's a really weird dichotomy, you know what I mean? And it's like we do a whole lot of generalizing, and I think we we start to learn that it's way deeper than what we think, you know. So um, I just started to learn that like I need to be in a position to where I can express myself, uh, I can unpack some of the things that need to be expressed, 
And when I got my first deal, I felt like I didn't want to tell anything about myself because I didn't think that people would find it interesting because at that time, everybody was drug dealers, rappers, and I didn't sell drugs. So I just felt like nobody's probably going to want to hear nothing about my personal life. So let me just rap about, you know, just rap about shit. I'm going to rap about, you know, violence or how much better than MCs I am, you know, and I just realized that there's a um, that's like a novelty. If you can do it well, that wears off really, really quick. And people, you know, after they go, Woo! all right. So what you got now? Who the fuck are you? So I think every artist should have that one self-defining album. I think all of our greatest rappers and artists of our of any generation, everybody's got that one album where you can listen to it. And you feel like, you know, you know, the person who put that album out, especially now where, you know, the social media has heightened everybody's senses so everybody if you thought people were nosy back then now people are feel entitled to your business you know what i mean they want to know everything about you and you they feel like you're doing them a disservice if you only give them music you know what i mean like that's not enough we want to know what you had for lunch you know what i mean so i got to a point when we did the bad me Seville album me and marshall that's when i started to experience fame that i didn't really want and then i i start i, I wasn't really happy because i was drinking all the time I was making a lot of money. I was making a lot of money. Well, at that time, I felt like it was a lot of money. I was making a lot of money. The money was not bringing me happiness. Not only was it not bringing me happiness, but it was, it was making, it was making for a lot of unhappy situations. Especially since I wasn't really prepared or equipped to be a critical thinking, a critical thinker in those, in a lot of those situations. So it was just a lot coming at me. You know what I mean? It was like I had a sign on my chest to say, hey, I got some money. Come ask me for something or come do something or put me in a position where it's going to cost me some of it. Let's, let's just fuck this up. Come on. You know what I mean? Like, that's how I felt. It was just like, you know, like when you when you got that kind of spirit, you walking around and you wearing it, you know, and it follows you. Some things happened. There was a thing that happened. I, got, I had this girl like expose me on media takeout. Remember when that was a thing? My son was in like the eighth grade. And um, he, he saw it on the computer. My wife's mother, you know, my mom, my mom. It was, it was just one of those things. It was like the last straw. It was like, um, it was like that moment where I remember telling myself that when I came into this business, I was gonna come into this business and leave this business with everything that I came into this business with, wife and family included, you know? I just felt like it was a real low moment for me because I just felt like a shell of my former self, you know? Like I didn't, I, I really like, always pride, really pride myself on respect. Like I really, really, I really, really enjoy the whole respect as, as a theory, as a thing. It's a very, very important thing. You know, it's not important to everybody, but it's really, really important to me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think it's probably because that's how my dad was. That's how my dad is, the same way. So it's kind of instilled in me. So like the kind of person that I am, like certain things can happen. And if I feel like um, it's it's beneath my moral, my moral, uh, like my moral standards, if it's beneath my moral standards, certain people will pop up in my mind and I'll be thinking to myself, like, I don't even want to see this person because I'm gonna have to face them after something like that happened to somebody like me. You know what I mean? My wife is, is the main one. I was feeling like I was just really, really like going out of my way to respect friends of mine. Like behind their back, respect. In their presence, respect. But my wife, behind her back, not so much. But we don't really look at it like that. We don't really compare one to the other because it's kind of like, it's kind of like cool to cheat on your wife in this business. You know, there's nobody to be like, yo, man, why are you doing that? We don't associate that with loyalty. We, we more so look at it like it's some man shit. You know what I'm saying? Which which I guess that's cool if, if in your 20s. You know what I mean? Like if, if, if you got to go through that, you know what I mean? But nah, because it was just like, it, it, I felt disloyal. You know what I mean? Like it was just like I could blame alcohol 
but I could be on heroin. I could be on whatever the most powerful drug is you can name. And there, there's never a situation or a scenario where I would ever sleep with search your wife. So why, if I can be loyal to you, why can't I be loyal to her? What's the difference? Actually, there is a difference. She, she's been with me longer. You know what I mean? Like she's been nothing but loyal to me. You know what I mean? So I just, I just really like stuff like that started popping into my mind. And I just feel like every man, like when we reach a certain age, we just get to a point in life or a bunch of points in life where we got to just start making really, really tough, really, really tough decisions. Tough meaning like right or left, no gray area. You're going to go this way, you're going to go that way, but you got to choose right now. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we all go through that. And some choose some things, some choose other things. But me, I didn't want to look like that. I didn't want to look like that. I didn't want to, I didn't feel like I was that person. So I was just like, I'm stopping. I called some people so I can hold myself accountable and blew the whistle. I announced it. You know what I mean? I called my mom, my dad, uh, Marshall, uh, my wife, my brother, my manager. I called, you know, everybody whose phone number I knew. Checked myself into a hot, they checked me into a hospital. I um, put an IV in me. I spent the night in there one night and haven't had a drink since. So um, that was eight years ago. And since then, I've been going to therapy. AA, of course, it took me a minute to, to kind of go to, to get to AA, but I think therapy really, really put me in a place, a good place mentally, where I could go to AA and really, really reap the true benefits of it. Because AA is it's tricky, especially if you're not ready. I, I went to AA a couple of times because I, when I used to get DUIs, I would be ordered by the court through, through probation to go. So when you go there, you're going to see people who are serious about being sober, then you're going to see a lot of bullshit people who aren't serious because they're ordered either by the judge or they're not ready to kind of like hold themselves accountable. So they still are high drunk, you know what I mean? And then it's like my first kind of like thoughts of it, of, of AA when I, the first time I went, like when I was on probation, my first observation of it was it, it makes me sad because we just, we exchanging stories, but people are telling me really sad stories. I didn't really like the way that I felt walking out of it, walking out of there. But after I decided to really get sober and then went to therapy for maybe a couple months, the next time I went to AA, it was much different. It was much different. It was much better. It was much better because I felt like I had more to share. I had more to add. I was more comfortable sharing. You know what I mean? And I, I started to go to meetings like on a road. I started to get like an idea of how, you know, the different AA meetings are in different places. You know, some of them have celebrities. You know, like some of them, you know, I'm find myself taking a picture with somebody, which I hate, you know what I mean? But it's part of it. You know what I mean? All in all, like therapy is like my my thing. You know what I mean? And, um, it was an interesting point for me in my career as far as being an artist, because I wasn't going to talk. I wasn't going to tell anybody. It was, I wasn't going to tell anybody. I didn't plan on I didn't plan on talking about being sober in my music. I didn't have that kind of strength. You know what I mean? And, and one thing just kind of led to another and it just ended up happening. It, there must have been a situation where somebody told me something good. Somebody told me that me sharing my sharing about my sobriety helped them in some sort of way. And when that happened, it was like that that feeling that I got where it was like, oh, man, OK, I'm finally doing something good now. You know what I mean? Like and it was like that feeling that I had in that moment by far outweighed all of the bad shit. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, damn. Mm -hmm. So it was like, so I just went with it, you know? And then like the more that I started to share, the more I started to want to share, you know what I mean? And the more I started to learn and the better I started to feel, you know what I mean? So it was just like, it's damn near like, it's damn near like taking the, the steps, the 12 steps in your career, no matter what you're doing, because you're always in it. You're always in the fight. It's always a part of the narrative. It's always something, you know, rather it's, some, rather it's somebody calling you and you having to give them advice, rather it's we're on a road and we just make time to go to AA, you know what I mean? Rather it's um, me reading the blue book just because I got some, some time, you know what I mean? Just being really intentional just about getting better, you know what I mean? And um, that turned into me just wanting to be intentional about everything in life, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? I was, gonna, I was gonna say, I mean, 
you just listening to you talk, listening to your story, you're helping me just by sharing, you know, being so honest. And um, you give me a lot of strength just hearing your story. So I can't imagine how many people you've helped with your music and like, you know, being able to share those things. It's an incredible story, Royce. And we've only talked a couple times, but I'm already so proud of you, dude. <laughs> like, I feel like you're my friend. I'm like, wow, I love this guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed. And um, I guess one of my first questions and what I loved when you said about the fame and money and how it's kind of marketed to us it's it's so true I never I, I didn't really put it in that context but um you know now that you kind of have both <laughs> um does that does that present any challenges to you now like that you've kind of lived with it for a long time and um you know do people still kind of like want to give you things that maybe you shouldn't be you know what I mean like I see a lot of artists just get handed drugs and handed alcohol like everywhere they go. And is that, does that uh, play into your life at all? Not at all. I mean, I can see where that could probably be a thing. I guess mm -hmm. if you allow yourself to be in certain positions, situations. Mm -hmm. But um, it's something about me. Like I, when, when I stopped, like when I stopped drinking, I stopped, I feel like I stopped wearing it. There was a point in time where every time I got behind the wheel of a car, all I would have to drive was for two seconds and I'm getting pulled over by the police. I thought I was being targeted. But when I got sober, I never got pulled over. I stopped getting pulled over. You know what I mean? And when I um, when I decided to start really being assertive with people and tell, and being okay with telling people no about asking me for like money and shit, people stopped asking. You know what I mean? Like that stopped. You know what I mean? I think it's, it's got a lot to do with your disposition and just your, what you're giving to the, to, to the universe, you know what I mean? And um, I can't really think of a, um, a situation or, or like an environment that would attract me that that where something like that could happen. You know what I mean? Like Good. I spend I spend the majority of my time at my studio, you know, at my studio, but I'm totally fine with going anywhere. I'll go anywhere. I'll go anywhere. Same. Yeah. I think that happens when you have a little time under your belt, you know, it's like I had, I, I got clean in um, 2010 and um, you know, I'll have to go backstage a lot and do interviews and there's so much around me, but it's, it hasn't presented a problem so far. So I'm, I'm fortunate in that sense. Um, I, you know, you did talk about how, you started going to the studio and you needed to stop at the liquor store before you got there. When you decided to get sober, were you nervous at all that that would affect your creative abilities and like, you know, how you write and stuff like that? Yeah, I was nervous about everything. It was a self-inflicted, a self-inflicted rough time in my life. Mm -hmm. it, probably took, it probably took maybe a year to really, to really get, get myself used to creating Mm -hmm. and, and I felt comfortable without without thinking to myself, yeah, I'm trying to trying to come up with something sober. You know what I mean? Like I would literally talk like that. I would <laughs> mopped into my own head. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So mm -hmm. I, I I I took the long way with that. You know, yeah. what I mean? like I frustrated myself. I leave the studio early, telling myself um, I can't come up with nothing. I got writer's block, or mm. I, I might have lost it. You know what I mean? Like I I. I I did it all. I was a drama queen about it. You know? <laughs> but look at you now. You got a Grammy Award nominated album. So I don't think the alcohol had much to do with that. Yeah, it didn't have much to do with it at all. But you, in, in that moment, it was just like, man. But, I, you know, I was just so over it. It was just like I was willing to deal with whatever came with it. I was totally cool with just getting a job if I needed to. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was just like I was I was that over it. Um, I, I really wanted to go back to something that you said about meetings and, and going to meetings elsewhere. You know, one of the my stories in recovery is that I've been fortunate enough to go to meetings as well outside of, you know, my home group mm -hmm. uh, and go to meetings in New York, go to meetings in Atlanta, go to meetings in even Montana when my father was alive. May he rest in peace, you know, going to meetings when I would visit him there. And obviously L.A. is a whole different animal. But the one thing I always saw, whether there were, you know, meetings in L.A., which are very celebrity driven and it's very much being seen in L.A. versus a meeting. in, mm -hmm. you know, I was in a meeting in Montana where this woman was literally talking about being a baby factory that she got pregnant to give up the babies for drug money. Um, you know, so you have this incredible. But the story of recovery has always been such a powerful one. Right. Can you share with me some of the like 
the overarching themes that you get from those meetings, regardless of where you are or who you are, what are some of those overarching themes that you get in, in meetings that you go to around the country or even around the world? What I pull from it is we have certain things in the world that are like uh, the equalizer. You know what I mean? Like we, we're taught to feel like that we're all so different from one another, right? And there's a few things that we have that we that can just kind of like debunk all of that and kind of like pull us into one thing and like bring us all in agreement into one thing where it's like we don't have a, a choice but to agree and kind of like look at each other at face value. And I think um, being an addict is one of those things. It doesn't matter what it is, what, what kind of drug, alcohol, there's no level, you know, like it's not like, you know, how we used to think growing up, you know, like I'm, I, I just drink. Be glad I don't do crack. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, yo, it's <laughs> no different. It's an addict is an addict. You know what I mean? And um, I think music does that as well. You know, if it's the right music, listen, man, two people with two conflicting ideologies will exist somewhere harmoniously. You know what I mean? And like, you won't be able to explain it. It will just be understood yeah. if it's the right music, if it's thriller or some shit. <laughs> no matter what you are, how yeah. you look, what language you speak. You know what I mean? Like the universal connector. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yes. And mm -hmm. you, you, you love, you love the way that it feels so much that you're willing to step outside of your comfort zone and go stand somewhere that you wouldn't normally stand with people you wouldn't normally stand with. And for the moment that that song is on, everybody is one. You know what I mean? So it's like, I feel like music does that. I feel like um, AA does that. I feel like AA does that because you, you're trading stories with people. Um, if you're lucky enough to be in the right meeting, you're trading mm -hmm. stories with people who are willing to be just as intentional as you are to, to heal, you know? And it's like, it's almost like that feeling you get when, you know, like when somebody's story and music just resonates with you, you know? Yeah. Like you see a movie and like it's a character in a movie that just mm -hmm. it's like damn it's, that's like that's me you know what i mean yeah it it gives, oh, yeah. You, it gives you that feeling and you don't feel because all of us addicts we alienate ourselves because once we start to realize that when everybody's ready to go home at two in the morning and leave the bar and you still want to stay and drink you start to realize that you're a little bit different from the regular person just a little bit different. I know? knew I was a little bit different when I was trying to sneak a bong into a Camp Low show. <laughs> I think I had a problem. Yeah. Um, I've done a lot of stupid things like that. But I was going to say, I mean, I, I have found myself bonding with, you know, like truck drivers and like from Iowa, like people I never thought I'd ever be able to have something in common with. It's like, boom, right there. You know, we all have that common thread. And that's a beautiful thing, like with music, like you said. We want really like to be we want to be understood. Mm -hmm. and I also think that I didn't mean to interrupt, brother, but I also think that's one of the stigmas about going to meetings. Right. And going to these meetings, there's such a stigma, you know, about who are in these meetings. And, oh, I'm not like. I'm not like you. You're an right. addict. I'm not. A, I'm not an addict. Mm -hmm. You're the addict. Mm -hmm. You're the one who's fucked up. You're the one who sold your kids. You're the one who went to jail. You're the one. I'm. I just did a little bit of blank. I'm not a fucking addict. You're a fucking addict. And a lot of that, for me, got broken down real fast, like real fast. When I realized that, when I went, you know, I was told when I went to my first meeting that we're all the same, and I didn't believe it. Because I'm MC Search. Right. I, I discovered Nas. I, I did Echo Unlimited. Mm -hmm. I made Nouveau. I, I made I'm not I'm not you. You're so you put yourself like, on a pedestal, basically. Not only a pedestal, I, I literally separated myself from the human race. It wasn't just separating myself from another addict. I separated myself from the human race. My self-centeredness, my addiction had created such an egocentric, self-centered behavioral pattern that my addiction was more about preserving who I thought I was, not what I truly was. So I went into meetings thinking that there's no way I'm going to see somebody who's like me. There's no way. It doesn't matter where I go. And uh, somebody told me to keep coming back, keep coming back, go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a sponsor, you know, buy the books, work a program. And I went to 90 meetings in 90 days and that didn't work. So I went to 120 meetings in 120 days. And that didn't work. So I went to 150 meetings in 150 days 
And that didn't work. I wound up going to a year of meetings because every time I went to a meeting, I heard something that resonated. So I became addicted to the meetings because I wanted to hear more. I wanted to humanize myself. Even though I was subconsciously not thinking that way, I understood that the more I heard from people who didn't look like me, who didn't sound like me, who didn't come from where I came from, the more it humanized me. And the more I started to weep and the more I became more self-aware and the more I became aware of I was an addict and that I needed a program to help me get out of this addiction. Because my drug of choice wasn't going to kill me. My behavior was. And, you know, what I love about your share, Royce, and, and what you were so open about was that you talked about how your realization of your alcoholism humanized you. You started to become a human again. I remember the article after you signed your deal with Tommy Boy in Source magazine, and it said they really fucked up giving a brother like me a million dollars. I remember that was literally what it said. And I was like, God, the ego on this motherfucker, he better write fucking Illmatic part two, three, four, and five to live up to that shit. You know what, you know, you know what, man? Everything about that is um I remember doing that that interview, because I it was an over-the-phone interview, and I remember my man Rick, yo, you gotta talk your shit. You gotta be cocky. You gotta be cocky. Like just be, you know, just just let let it be known. Like, you know, like a million dollars, let them know the deal. You got me, let them know. It was like he had his own vision of how he thought things should go. I didn't necessarily feel the same way, but I also, I also didn't want to like, I didn't want to be like not open to other people's ideas. So it was like, I was already thinking to myself to kind of like play, not that I'm like blaming it on, it's my fault, but (laughs) you know, as younger artists, we feel like we want to kind of play team ball and we feel like two heads is better than one in in a lot of cases, but you know, well, like what, what I learned about that is that nobody could tell you how to be you. Like nobody can, nobody can like create you. Nobody can like you know articulate what you are. If you you got to be able to do that. You know what I mean? So you know, but like the difference now is that even you know, and even when you were sharing your story, you said something, and it's going to resonate. It's going to keep with me. You said that you becoming sober humanized you. You found the humanity in yourself. You found the humanity that you lost. So now when I see you and I think about that line, I can't imagine that coming from you today, mm-hmm. coming from what you've experienced and who you are as a human being today, like it's night and day. And, and like you said, it definitely comes with age and it comes with wisdom and it comes with experience. Um, but what are some of the other things that you feel like the 12-step program gave to you besides obviously sobriety? Yeah, pr- perspective, you know, perspective, Um the opportunity for other people's stories to resonate, you know, um, it's always good to be able to compare and contrast because the whole, the whole, the whole, um, the whole goal is to, is to, is to learn self, learn self. So you can, so you can figure out ways to improve, you know, like you can be in a space where you're not improving and you think you're the best version of you that you can be, you know, and you can go long periods of time without even, without even developing or anything. You can basically put time in the garbage can if you if you go about it the wrong way. You know what I mean? And, um, I think I was able to just experience both ways of living my life. Um, I, I know how it feels to I call it getting pushed around by the universe. I know I get pushed around by the universe and just one day, same as the next, you know. And then I know how it feels and how it feels in contrast to be intentional daily, you know, and like every day striving to be better today than I was yesterday, you know. And um, I think AA just kind of helped. AA is in therapy. It's like a one-two punch. Yeah. It just Mm -hmm. helps. It helps you place perspective on things. And it gives you like different ways to look at things. You know, Mm -hmm. it gives you another way. Like it gives you in a lot of of times a juxtaposed version of yourself. Mm -hmm. Like somebody will be in there like that. You know, like the... um, the Unbreakable movie with with with, with Bruce Willis and um, Samuel L. Jackson, you know, like the, the other person, the opposite, like the arch nemesis, you know, like that person is out there. You may need to know their story so you know what your where your place is at. You know what I mean? I, I truly believe everybody needs therapy and a twelve step program. I think everybody could benefit from that. You know what? A I'm, I'm a Jewish kid from New York. I was bar mitzvah. I got money and a therapist. Like that's what you get as a bar mitzvah. <laughs> 
you know what I mean? So, yeah, but, um, I mean, I'm in therapy as well. Like, I think it's, and also, like, I think you know, there's other. You mean singular? You're in therapy singular? Like, singular. do you want to see my my <laughs> roster of therapists that I go to? I just have one. I, I have got a, a fucking counselor. roster. I have a brief counselor Yo, right now. I want I want to ask you, Roy, two questions because we I know your time is precious, and 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 we believe on this show the most valuable commodity you have is time. So we don't want to waste yours. And, and I certainly wouldn't want you to waste mine. But um, what are some of the things that you heard in meetings that have resonated with you, like sayings? Or are there certain things that stick with you that have really you heard them as kind of like ideologies, but have become fact or like, you know, are there certain things that just stick with you? Mm. The first thing that just popped in my head when you asked me that, um, and I don't even remember I don't even know if I remember exactly the first time I heard this, but the first thing, the first thing that popped into my head just now is a day at a time. You know, that's like, that's the caveat, right? You got to live by that, right? (laughs) That's the one thing that's like, that's always going to be, you know, the the elephant in the room. You know what I mean? Like, that's like, that's like, that's like the number one thing that I kind of like put on the table. If I'm, if I'm speaking to somebody in context of like being a sponsor, you know, that one day at a time just really, really gives you the proper way to look at it, you know, because up until you're hearing that, you're, you're looking at the big picture. You're looking at the, you're trying to look at the end of the rainbow. And sometimes it's a little further ahead of you than you can see right now, you know, and it helps you to, to be able to just, you know, take it even a step at a time, you know. And um, that turned into different things. I was able to apply that in different ways in my life, you know, like just getting things done. It may be like a, um, a laundry list of things that I got to do and um mm-hmm. I'm the type of person I'll look at, I'll look at it and I'll get overwhelmed if I see it as a thing, you know what I mean? But, you know, I started to learn how to, you know, like just, you know, piece it, mm-hmm. get it done, get it done, be consistent and be intentional with completing things, finishing mm-hmm. things. I, mean, mm-hmm. like I, got, I think Do you make lists. I'm the same way. I make lists like every day I have to make a list of like things I need to do. And I can do you typically do that as well? Or do you just kind of keep it up here? Yeah, no, if I got, if I make a, I'll make a list if I need to, but I try, Mm -hmm. I try to only make a list when it's like a list is necessary. (laughs) If it's an album, if it's an album and, um, that's all, it's always a list that comes with that. (laughs) You know, like sometimes, um, I, I, I like the way that I feel when I do things, like when I can get things done for people that I tell them that I'm going to do. If somebody asks me to do something and I tell them I'm going to do it, I like how I feel when I get those things done. You know what I mean? So Sometimes I'll just I'll I'll commit to too many things, you know what I mean? Like, and then I'll look up and it'll be like, oh fuck, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I, yep. gotta, do this, I gotta do that. Once it gets to that point, then yeah, I gotta make a list just to make sure I don't forget anything, mm-hmm. you know. And um, just kind of like that helps me focus on one thing at a time because I can't multitask at all <laughs> for whatever reason. A whole lot of things can have my attention at once if I allow them to, you know what I mean? But I can't multitask. So for me it's always been about taking those those words like hope or fear or me, right? So like I always think about when people say, you know, I, I I've lost hope. Mm-hmm. I say, well hope is have our program every day. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Or when somebody says I'm consumed with me, well, that means you need a meeting every day. Because mm. the only me is we, right? And mm. fear, false emotions appearing real. Like mm-hmm. I like, you know, because it's just the MC in me. I like to break things words <laughs> down. Like that's how I find mm-hmm. things. I, mm-hmm. I, I totally let the MC in me take over all the time. Like I, yeah. um, it's because of AA that I learned that I learned that whenever I'm like trying to work on something, it's not flowing for whatever reason. I found out that if I can, if I call somebody, as long as it's the right person, like Preem. Um, somebody I like talking to, somebody I like talking to, preferably late at night. Uh, if we had a right conversation, when we, when I hang up the phone, uh, I'm up, I'm up, yeah. I'm um, inspired the again. Little, the little yeah. rush you get, yeah. When you like take the shot right before you go in the booth. I can get that by calling somebody. Honestly, like after our first interview, I felt like that after we hung up the phone because it's like it was such a good conversation. <laughs> You're just hype, you know. It's like oh, like I understand completely. Understand. And then lastly, we ask everyone that does the show, you know, for the people that are listening to this right now who might be afraid or concerned or just, you know, timid or whatever mm-hmm. about going into a meeting and working a 12-step program and, and getting the help they need. How would you help them to kind of ease their mind about going into a meeting or finding a program that could potentially save their life? Um, I think at the very beginning, 
I would say do any put, do anything that you can do to to take yourself in there. Like if you need to bring somebody with you, it's okay to think outside the box. You know, like there's no um, there's no script. You know, um, the key is just to get there. That's like that. That's like the goal in the end. It's just like religion. You know what I mean? Like some people are Muslim, some people are Christian, some people at the end of the day. Everybody believes in God, you know, like and, and everybody has their way that they're doing it, that they can live with. that makes them feel good about it. So find that thing that makes you feel good about going in and being intentional about getting better, getting yourself better. And this is like an environment that if you can somehow figure out a way to get yourself in there, then you can start to feel, you know, like the, the, the benefits of just being intentional with getting yourself in that environment. You know, like I went when I first went. I took uh, I took my little brother with me. I took my wife with me to one. I wasn't going alone at first. I was going with my therapist. Then I started going alone. And then I started getting to a point when I was traveling, I didn't want to go with nobody. I just wanted to go by myself. My manager was kind of irritating me. You know what I mean? Like, you in no way. You know what I'm saying? Like, a little I break. Going, yeah. yeah I myself. <laughs> and I, I, I was doing that because I started to learn that um, this is my process and I, this is what I need to feel good about it. You know, like, I don't need anything in my head that's making me feel like, you know, why is he acting like this? Or why is he like, this is, that's not what this is about. You know what I mean? Like, this is just about finding your essentials, you know, and um, finding the sweet spot, finding the sweet spot in, in, in sobriety. It's the same way as finding the sweet spot in life. You got to find it. You know, you got to yeah. know how to balance things, balance home life versus studio life and fame mm-hmm. versus friendship. And, you know, all of these things, mm-hmm. you know, you just can't let those things kind of like dictate stuff you know mm-hmm. what I mean because then you, you fucked <laughs> you mm-hmm. yeah I, I had a friend of mine who said yo they use that g word for me I never you very rarely will hear me use the g dash d word because I have such a reverence for the most high who I choose to call Hashem but my friend always broke down for people who are afraid of that because a lot of people come into the room and they don't have an idea of a power greater themselves mm-hmm. so they, he breaks down the word g-o-d grow or die mm-hmm. and it's obvious to me Royce, that instead of death, you decided to grow. And Mm -hmm. I'm just so thankful for your process and your progress for choosing principles over personalities, for finding this program, for finding yourself, for finding that glow inside of you. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to meet you in 94. Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful I got to spend time with you in Detroit when I was in the radio. Mm -hmm. And even more thankful that we're both in recovery in 2021 and, and truly still becoming the best versions of ourselves. So Royce, the five nine, what do you got coming up for all the people that are fans of yours? What, what do you got coming up in the future? Man, right now, I, um, the whole pandemic, I've been working on my studio. My, <clears throat> I totally redid my whole studio. So it's like, I haven't been doing that much recording. You know, um, I've been, I've been finding a way to balance, like uh, figuring out the things that, that's, that's making me feel good to do. And for whatever reason, that's not always recording these days. Maybe because I, I've said a lot of the things that I want to say musically. I'm just getting to a point where I'm starting to like uh, self-police a lot. So, you know, somebody asked me, like, how long do you think you'll be rapping? And this is what I came up with. I'm going to rap as long as my raps, I feel that my raps are the most important thing that I can contribute. The second that I start to feel like it's something else that, that I can contribute that will benefit the, the, the ecosystem more, and that's what I'm going to do. You know what I mean? So now it's just like I don't come to the studio and just tell myself, I'm in the studio, so I'm going to rap. Sometimes I just come yeah. here and just watch TV. You know. <laughs> so you're not exactly in album mode, but if you found yourself in album mode, it wouldn't be a, a bad thing. He would know where to go. Basically, if he was in album mode. I found out that I, that I got like a, a love for cameras and like yeah. I'm down the rabbit hole right now I'm buying cameras I, I switched all my rooms around I remodeled all my rooms Dope. I like cleaning up now <laughs> amazing what Dope. you find in recovery yeah. oh man <laughs> the five nine. thank you so much yeah and um, thank you for sharing your story with us I mean, an that's amazing story thing. I, I yeah. mean, thank you thank you and uh Stay tuned um, for numbers and dot coms and websites where you can go and get uh, the help you need uh, for Royce of 5-9. My name is MC Search. And I'm Kyle Eustace. And this is Breaking Anonymity. And please get yourself some help if you need it. Yay, yay. Peace. <laughs> 
Check out new episodes of Breaking Anonymity every Wednesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends and subscribe. The Breaking Anonymity podcast is a timeless podcast company production. Executive produced by Chantel Barron, Brett Epic-Mazur, Kyle Eustis, and Michael Barron. Produced by Kyle Eustis and Michael Barron. Sound design by Brett Epic-Mazur and Nick Davila. Breaking Anonymity logo created by Paul Lukes. Sound effect voiceover by Tembisa Mashaka. If you are battling with addiction or know someone who is, please call the National Addiction Helpline. 1-800-662-4357. That's 1-800-662-4357. You do not have to battle addiction alone.